Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Ask the Industry podcast, episode 76. I'm Simon Kane, and for those of you new to the show, this is the podcast where I interview the most influential people from the worlds of stand-up, comedy, radio, and today, the live circuit. Mark Tuggan is the founder and owner of the Glee Comedy Club chain, which at the time of recording operates in four cities around the United Kingdom. I got him on to talk about how the club started, the tricky early years, key advice for promoters starting their own clubs, that includes both purpose-built and room above a pub setups. We also covered his recently resolved, and I say that a little bit hesitantly because I'm hoping it's still resolved at the time you're listening to this, lawsuit with Fox TV over the copyright of the word Glee. Yes, you did hear that correctly. Apparently, they have copyrighted that word. Much like apparently Disney have copyrighted happy as a word. That's a whole different issue. I want to make it clear ahead of time, as I've been asked this a few times recently, none of the guests are told any of the questions up front. So when Mark answers questions like if the circuit's in crisis, or if his club is tied up with big agents, he's answering them then and there, on the spot, as and when we do this. As always, if you're new here, please do hit that subscribe button. If you're old here, please do consider giving us an honest review on iTunes. And either way, consider giving us a donation via PayPal or Patreon on my website, which is simoncain.co.uk. But without any more delays, this is Mark Tuggan. Yeah, gosh, uh, what was I doing before the club started? I was a city banker, believe it or not. The sort of the, the history to, to the, the glee was that after school, I was at school in, in, in East Belfast, and like a lot of people born and brought up in, in Northern Ireland, the first thing you want to do when, you, when you're sort of 17 or 18 is, is get out, because it's a bit small and parochial. So I, I took a year off after school, and I worked various menial jobs in London for a bit. And one day I got rung up by a family friend, you know, given the fact that I was 18 I think my dad had asked a pal to keep an eye on me make sure I wasn't in any trouble and he, he rang up and sort of said look I've heard about this place called Comedy Store I've heard it's an absolute hoot why don't we go along this was 1986 so we went along and this was back in the day when there was there was obviously no advanced booking there was certainly no online booking I'm not even sure about telephone booking but you queued up for I think in this case sometimes you queued for a couple of hours and we queued up and we, we went to the Comedy Store and I don't recall exactly who was on but obviously what happened was with me is I ended up going back to the comedy store many, many times. And the kind of people I saw were Joe Brand, 
Kevin Day, Stavros, remember Stavros, and loads of money and all that kind of stuff. So something clicked in 1986 for me. And then what happened is I went off to uni, which was Nottingham. That took me from 87 to 90. I still came back to London a couple of times, a few times just working in the holiday, again, doing menial jobs around London. And for me, the best way to have fun was to go to the comedy store. I then got a job working for... Uh, it was an old an old school British merchant bank called Brown Shipley. Doesn't exist anymore. And again, you know, by that stage I was meeting up with friends and going to the comedy store or or jonglers. I used to go to jonglers a fair bit. So that took place whilst I was working in London. That was ninety to ninety-three. I was still going to lots of comedy, comedy store, jonglers, screaming blue murder. That was a big one for me. I saw Eddie Izzard in standing room only sort of situation. So very early Eddie Izzard and I think something was just clicking with me that comedy was changing and it was changing for the better and it was really exciting and I just sort of wanted to be part of this. For those listeners who are old enough to remember, but 1990 to about 1993 was a recession not quite as bad as the one, as the Great Recession of 2008 2010 but from the point of view of the city of london it was was as bad i mean i I joined a a little corporate finance department in 1990 of 36 people and by the time i left there were four (laughs) there were four of us left so cut a long story short one night i was in the comedy store and you know the conversation turned to this is amazing why doesn't this happen or does it happen outside london and the speculation at the time was probably not but something stuck in my head and i decided to think about it and research it a bit more and what i discovered was obviously there was nothing like the comedy store or jonglers in any other city of course there were take for example birmingham you know there was malcolm bailey up at the bear in in bearwood and you know he was putting on people like frank skinner joe brand jack d those kind of early pioneers but there was there was no dedicated purpose-built clubs so something stuck in my head and eventually it stuck so badly that i couldn't dislodge it it sounds a bit dramatic but i was having a a I really wasn't enjoying what I was doing and I kind of realised I wasn't that good at it either. I wasn't sleeping particularly well, etc, etc, all the usual stuff. And one Monday morning, I had had a particularly you know bad night. I went in and I went to the main guy, the, the personnel guy, and said, I'm sorry, I quit. Having nothing else to go to, but having decided that somehow or other I was going to do something in, in the world of comedy. And then the Glee Club came along and the rest is history. Must have felt pretty good. Was it just, it wasn't a spur of the moment, but was it like a... It was almost spur of the moment. I mean, I hadn't, put it this way, the previous week I hadn't thought of quitting on that Monday, but I just had a particularly bad weekend thinking, I can't do this any longer. So yeah, it was a bit of a a sort of a walk-in, expecting to do a, a normal shitty day's work, but halfway through the morning over coffee going enough's enough I quit <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean look obviously prior to that I'd been to Birmingham I'd kind of ascertained that you know if I was going to do this this was going to be it I'd also at the time I'd got together with a pal and you know we were going to do a room above a pub but I'd come across some premises. I called up my pal and sort of said, look, let's not do a room above a pub on a Friday night. Let's actually build a club a little bit like the comedy store or jonglers and let's let's sell food, let's sell drink, let's sell tickets, let's let's book acts, let's let's do this as a full time venture. He got cold feet immediately, so I was on my own and I'm glad I went ahead and did it. Never looked back. The industry in general is in the club circuit. A lot of performers, especially ones I talk to, move to London because they see it as the best place to 
get stage time and experience. And by the sounds of it, it was still that back then where even though there were less clubs, there were just more in London. Oh, very, very, very much so. In the other fairly informal research I did is I went up to some acts after nights in, I think, again, John Glows or the Comedy Store, and I managed to sort of strike up conversations with some guys at the bar. And so I was sounding people out going, listen, you know, if somebody set up a club like this in Birmingham, would you do it? Would you perform at it? And what sort of money would you want, etc., etc.? And the, I think the thing that struck me was the, you know, it really piqued people's interest. And the answer was an overwhelming yes. And what took me by surprise was just the enthusiasm for that. It was a big factor in really going ahead with it. How hard was it for you and uh, were you married in a relationship at that point? Like, How hard was it personally for you to go, I'm going to leave my job and I'm going to start a comedy club? Because when comedians say, I'm going to leave my job and become a comedian, it's not always created with the most amount of support. Yeah, I mean, I think the timeline was I handed in my notice in November 1993. Rather amazingly for the time, because normally if you hand in your notice when you work for a corporate finance department of a bank, you know, you're, you're out with a bin bag there there and then. They made me work out my notice, so that, that took me until almost Christmas 1993. I moved to Birmingham in about April 94, and the club actually opened in September 94. So that was the rough sort of timeline. It took a full nine months between quitting, finishing work in London and opening the Glee Club in September 94. Is it still the same venue now? Yeah, it's still the same premises, but it's like Mark II now because the the first club occupied approximately half the space that we occupy now. And what happened is about six years in, quite simply, the, the little business next door, which was a photography business, it went bust and the landlord didn't immediately have another tenant. Our landlord at the time was vaguely aware that things had worked out pretty well for us. I think I must have said, listen, you know, we're doing quite well. We, we'd like some more space. So as soon as the business next door went bust, we got offered the space at, at a reasonably good rate. We took down the walls but instead of actually just grafting on the extra space to the original club we actually gutted the whole club and rebuilt it all over again yeah i read a thing that said when junglers was about to open up you just closed down for two months to redo it so it sounds like it was the perfect storm yeah, for you funnily enough it, it was the perfect sort of coincidence because the space became available just at the time when i became aware that junglers were coming to birmingham so this was in about 2001 2002 this was when junglers went from from, as well as London, they were the next ones were Oxford, Watford, Leicester, Nottingham, Southampton. Those were the five early ones. Then I discovered they were coming to Birmingham. And I had one of those moments as a, a businessman and as an entrepreneur. Jonglers at the time absolutely filled me with fear because they were good. I mean, let, let's, let's be honest about that. A lot of people consider it sport to laugh at jonglers and they're not what they used to be. And, you know, they've fallen on hard times on more than one occasion. But in the noughties and particularly in the early noughties they were to some extent the gold standard they were expanding all over the country they were intimately connected to a company called Regent Inns who were at the time I mean they were quoted on the FTSE 250 they were turning over tens of millions I mean I, I'm not even sure whether they hit a hundred million in sales but when I discovered they were coming to Birmingham I had a week or two where I literally lay in bed at night going 
do you know what? This has been great fun and maybe I can profitably engage in managed decline. Let's put it that way. But the, the space became available and I'm a natural gambler and a natural fighter. And I thought, sod this, double or quits. Let's take this from a 350 capacity club to a, well, it's now, it's 400 in the main room. It's 150 in the studio and 100 or so in the, in the little lounge bar downstairs. I just thought this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I'm going to fight and I might go down. And it's, it sounds like a bit of a cliche, but I, I decided I'd rather go down fighting than get into this business of, the alternative to me was managed to decline. I would. I want to kind of quote you on something because I find something really interesting on what you said there. You said that they were the gold standard and they were expanding all over the place. But I've read a quote from you before where you said that comedy clubs can't really be chained. Yeah, I think that view came about towards the latter years of Jonglers. I thought at one point they were writing the book on how to do it. But you know what? Towards the end, when the wheels started coming off, that was really when I started to believe that comedy clubs are not Nando's. They're not Domino's. They're not fast casual dining outlets. It's I think it's a lot harder to be a chain. Yeah, it was true. I was full of fear and I thought they were the gold standard. But in the end, they wrote the book, I think, to some extent on how not to do it. Did you learn anything from what they did? Yeah, one of the biggest things for me was I noticed that they just couldn't keep their finger off the mouse, you know? Every weekend ended up being an offer. And as anyone in this business knows that selling a ticket and grabbing somebody's email address and their phone number and their name and address, you know, that that's a very valuable bit of data because that's a customer that you can contact. And I don't know whether it was because Regent Inns were a stock market quoted company with monthly targets and quarterly targets and annual targets. But what seemed to happen more and more, an offer would come in almost every week into my inbox and nights started getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And I just thought, what is going on here? They just seem to be just absolutely desperate to fill every night at whatever cost. And I just developed my own feeling that the last thing you should be doing on a Wednesday or a Thursday afternoon, thinking, well, I'm not going to be quite full on Saturday night, is sending an email with an offer in it to your own database of customers who have in the past been prepared to come on a Saturday night and pay full price. That is taking, in my view, your most valuable asset and pouring a bucket of cold water on it and devaluing it. It's like I've got customers that have come to me on a Saturday night and they've paid, what was it, way back in the noughties, you know, 10 or 12 or, or 14 pounds. And by constantly bombarding them with an offer to come half price, you're pretty much just educating them never to come again and pay pay the full price. And that just became endemic. And then obviously, you know, with my former sort of city hat on, I used to be essentially a bit of a leisure analyst. I used to study the accounts of things like Regent Inns. And I just, I saw that for a number of years running, they were opening more outlets, but the existing outlets they had were selling less and less and less. And the basic businessman in me eventually said, the music's going to stop someday. It can't last. You can't keep opening more and more shops with each shop selling less and less and less because at the same time you're opening more and more shops, you're taking on a lot, an awful lot more overhead, an awful lot more staff. And sure enough, I mean, everybody pretty much knows the history of it, but um, Regent Inns eventually went bust. And Jonglers was essentially a franchise. It was a, a rent brand franchise type business. So 
Well, everybody knows the, the, the rest of the history. The relationship was terminated. You know, Jonglers has come back in various different forms and guises over the years, but it's never really recovered to the glory days of the noughties. My day job, I write jokes for the internet, for Twitter mainly. And the thing I keep pushing home for people that I've learned from that is the amount of options people have is so high that their time is now the most valuable thing. Yeah. And that means that a live show where you've got the most amount of people giving up the most amount of time in their life. Yeah. Because at home they could just watch something and pause it and come back to it and whatever. Like even this, they could they could listen to twenty minutes, go away, come back an hour later and listen to the rest of it. It's not it's not the moment they're buying. Yeah. So by devaluing that moment, you're basically saying it's not worth what we want to sell it for. Or we're, or we're trying yeah. to lie to you at the first state hurdle by telling you what it's worth. Yeah, do you know, I mean, I've had, I wouldn't say I've had a steady stream, but I've, I've had plenty of people that have come to me and, and sat down with me, ar- arranged meetings and asked me about the business. And, you know, Birmingham for us is obviously the flagship. I mean, in a good year, and this is a good year, the number of nights that we fail to sell out Saturday nights at full price, you can pretty much count on on just one hand. You know, we might not sell out this Saturday night because it's half term and, and Halloween, for example. But I've had you know senior people from fairly large pub chains say, "How the hell do you do that? You know, how the hell do you get 400 people almost 52 weeks of the year on Saturday nights coming and paying? Well, it, it's 1850 for us at the moment. And you know what my answer is to them? My answer is this: patience. If you've got 400 seats to sell and you've only sold 350, do not under any circumstances go to your computer design an email going 50% off and press send to in our case a vast database consisting of tens of thousands of people that is utter utter madness so you know my answer when people sort of say how the hell do you achieve that I say 20 years of patience 20 years of going not sold out this particular Saturday night that's okay will be better next week. So you've got, a, so let's take Birmingham, for example, as a, just a, an average venue, because I know you've got four, right? You've got four. So venue A, which is we'll call Birmingham, has 400 seats in one room, 150 seats in another room, and 100 in the other one. Yeah, the downstairs lounge bar is just a, it's just a cafe bar. It's not a performance okay. area. So it's uh, 400 in the main room and 150 in the in the studio. You've got to, I mean, you're renting that space still, I assume. Yeah, we're, we're the, the three out of the four, out of our four clubs are leaseholds. So I pay rent to a landlord. I pay this thing called service charge to a landlord. I pay this thing called rates to all the various councils. Yeah. And obviously you've got to sell a certain number to even break even, let alone make a profit. Yeah. yeah. How long from when you opened did it take you to get to that stage where you could not obviously sit on your lowest, but you could comfortably go, or maybe we'll open another club because this one's building? Yeah, I think my recollection of it is we opened in September 94, and obviously for the rest of 94, and for the pretty much for the whole of 95, we were were making fairly horrendous losses. I thought I was a businessman back there, but I did a business plan. I mean, all businesses pretty much lose money in their first year, and we forecast to lose a certain amount of money, and we think we probably lost more than double that. I had backers at the time, and I had to go along to my own backers and sort of say, sorry guys, double or quits, but here's a revised plan. I, I think I can turn it round. So 95 was pretty much a write-off. 96, I think, was the year that things really started to turn around, and... 97, I was feeling relatively comfortable. 
So it was it it was two thousand when we opened Cardiff. Although I think, if I remember rightly, I spent an awful lot of nineteen ninety nine competing with the Comedy Store over the Deansgate Locks site that the Comedy Store ultimately won. They prevailed, and we ended up doing Cardiff with me very much kind of licking my wounds, going well. I didn't manage to get Manchester. Even that was quite a fortuitous story. I think somehow or other a property agent had heard word that we were expanding. Perhaps he heard word that we'd lost out on Manchester and I, I just got a call one day saying have you ever thought about Cardiff I think if I recall the answer at the time was not really but it was one of those things where he said come out to Cardiff I'll buy you lunch I'd like to show you what's happening out in the Bay Area and again you know the, the, the rest is history Cardiff fantastically for us was an instant hit so Cardiff was a great great moment for me personally because you know I think in, in a lot of businesses you know it, it isn't just judgment there's a little bit of luck in there as well so Cardiff working out so well so quickly was for me personally was the icing on the cake because it what it was saying to me was I didn't just get lucky with Birmingham there really is something in this and although Cardiff was in an instant hit you know I then had the situation where I think Jonglers arrived in Cardiff approximately nine months after we got there I had a fantastic first nine months and then, you know, it was a dogfight for customers for a number of years. So Cardiff ended up being an instant hit. Then it was a bit of a disappointment for about five years. Then we didn't quite get the sort of hockey stick, but things really improved in, I think it was about 2008. And in, in 2009, Jonglers closed in, in Cardiff. I think 2009 was when the, the pre-pack or the administration of Regent Inn took place. So that, that was when the first collapse of Jonglers took place in we almost had a sort of a hockey stick in terms of sales and, and profits. It sounds like you you don't have a, a formalised relationship with other club chains. Like you sort of know what's going on with them, but you don't. Do you, I mean, do you meet up? I mean, how is your relationship with other clubs? I've never I've never been that much of a sort of a pub and club networker extraordinaire. But Don Don Ward at the Comedy Store, I, I, you know, I consider him a, a friend. I've never met Tommy at the stand personally, but we've we, we've spoken once or twice over the phone. You know, I know. I know Richard from Comedia. You know, most of us chat when we need to. Industry, it's it's like everything, you know, industry players talk. But, you know, I had a few interesting meetings with with jonglers in the early early days. I was genuinely concerned for them. And at one point I contacted the the then management. I, I thought it was collapsing pretty badly. And I arranged to meet them and sort of said, listen, I think I might be able to help you. I think things are going wrong in the comedy area. Now, of course, you have to remember for Regentins, the comedy clubs were only a small part of, of their overall business. They still had 50-odd walkabouts, but I, I seem to remember a, a meeting in a hotel with some Regentins management, and it, it didn't go very well. They basically told me to sling my hook, and what could I possibly tell them about? But ironically, a short while after that, I teamed up with another reasonably well-known entrepreneur in the food and drink space to table an, an offer for bits of jonglers that were, at the time, facing a pre-packed administration but nothing came of that so um so that that, that that was the one that got away i did actually team up with someone and and make an offer for four or five jonglers clubs to, to pull them out of administration but um it, it didn't come off what about your relationship with the more indie clubs around the different areas that you operate in don't really don't really have much much contact yeah i mean i, I know i know who operate I, I, i've got a fair idea of you know who operates what 
clubs here and there. But I, you know, I think when it comes to the more indies, you know, people keep keep themselves to, to themselves. I mean, for me, I consider the Glee to be part of a oh, sounds a bit arrogant, but a sort of a, an exclusive group of what I call the, the you know the credibles. You know, so the Glee, the stores, the stands, and and comedia. You know, in the sense that. We're the guys who have somehow managed to you know, navigate the business side of things reasonably well and see if we can sort of hang the whole thing together. Obviously, the comedy stores hung together things phenomenally well, I think, over the years. But we're, I think we're the credible bunch, both from the business perspective in the sense that we've shown there's a genuine business in this in the long term. But we've also run good clubs that appeal to the acts, appeal to the artists, but also, you know, crucially, appeal to customers as well, because that's where it all starts. Yeah, my next question was going to be where do you see your place in the circuit? But I think you kind of answered that with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, as part, yeah. As, as part of a as part of a, a nice little group of credibles. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to move on slightly to the act side of what you do. So obviously you've got a massive database of acts that have performed for you and you obviously have like a, a regular roster of people that you might approach or you might know their agent and approach them and get them on. Mm. But how do you find new acts to come through? Well, for, I mean, first of all, on the on, on the on the general booking side of things, it's 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 not it's not it's not a great big industry secret that basically off the curb book our weekend mixed bill comedy. So Thursday, Friday, Saturdays that we do have been booked by Joe and Danny and Damon at, at off the curb for a, a very long time, and I don't see why that would change going forward either. I, I know those guys really well. I like them all. Damon actually at off the curb was my second ever employee so you know there's obviously a relationship there too you know that they've looked after us very well remember as well the mixed bill comedy that we do on thursday friday saturday night it's still the majority of what we do it's about 70 percent of our sales and, and profits but we also i think at last count we do about 110 or 120 solo touring shows so these are the likes of you know the james a casters and the gary delaney's and the richard herrings and all those sorts of guys so at last count we do about 110 120 of those every year and the other thing that we do is take Birmingham for example because Birmingham's the busiest when it comes to music but if we do less than 45 music gigs a year that's a quiet year the, the aim is to do 55 or, or maybe even 60 music gigs in terms of new acts and, and new talent well we get fairly inundated with emails from guys that want to do open spots and we do those every Friday night 52 weeks of the year or almost 52 weeks of the year have been doing that for pretty much 22 years we have this lovely show on a Thursday night carousel where we also have three three five minute spots as well so there's always we've got a pretty long waiting list and we do like I say we do these spots in Birmingham three on on a typical Thursday plus an open spot on a Friday we do as many open spots as we can in Cardiff we we do them really regularly in Oxford not so much in Nottingham but we're getting more and more in, in Nottingham and the, the great thing when it comes to booking is the Glees they almost book themselves because they're good clubs you know I don't want to teach sort of the, the boys off the curb how to suck eggs but I don't think it's a crazily difficult job to get the Glees nicely programmed 52 weeks a year although obviously e extra effort goes into Christmas and when it comes to the solo touring stuff which is actually in, it's certainly in the last five or six years become a really significant part of our business because as you've probably seen there are so many comics that are out touring at the moment you know we we want to make sure that we are busy 
and we get enough of them but we don't do so many that we end up cannibalizing everything else that we do we need to be close to all the agents whether they're based in london or, or anywhere else such that when xyz goes on tour we're one of the first people that that they call and we try and keep them coming to the glee obviously we, we wish them well you know it's great when you know a comic comes and does the glee and then the next time they're in town hall you know a year or, or two later if we can keep them coming to the glee for a number of different tours then th- th- that's fantastic but but we recognize that some guys move on to bigger and better things what would you say to a comedian who says that you're you're booking because it's going through off the curb yeah. is a little bit tied up and hard to break through because they're obviously going to have their own vested interest in getting their own acts on. I think that's I think that's a little bit unfair. I mean, if you if you if you look in detail at all the acts that come here, look. If you want to go looking for a tiny bit of bias, it would, it would probably be really really ingenuous of me, disingenuous of me to say that, that 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 doesn't exist. Of course it does. You know, do off the curb use their size and power a little bit po- possibly. Do I think do I think it's abused no not not really and at the end of the day we're, we're not like I mean I've heard about sort of fabled feedback systems that may or may not have existed at certain other club chains but you know we feed back to off the curb if not on a daily then on, on a weekly basis and we frequently write them quite a long report just telling them how the year has gone who's done well who's coming with new stuff who's pleasing the crowds I mean, audiences change particularly o- over decades it would be wrong for me to, to go and obviously go naming names and stuff like that but off the curb get a lot of feedback from us i'm going to stick up for them they listen because obviously a lot of acts get booked many many months in advance it's not a case of sort of providing feedback and everything suddenly changes you notice a change within weeks but you certainly notice a change with, with within months. So I, 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 I definitely want to stick up for them. I think they've done a great job for us. From, from my perspective, yeah. it would make business sense if I was somebody who was the size of off the curb to yeah. put my acts in if I was booking something. Yeah. But it would also make business sense for me to have other acts going through just so that I could see new blood coming through, but also yeah. acts that I might want to book at some point for something else. Yeah. Because they can't cover every act and they can't possibly only book their own stuff. To to some extent off the curb almost rely a little bit on us because we're there we're also their eyes and ears in in the clubs. You have to remember as well it's it's important that you get a bit of feedback that's outside of London as well because I think whilst it's got less and less over the years and decades, comedy used to be incredibly London centric. Um, As we said at the start, yeah. yeah. I think it's still seen that way though. Yeah, I think it still is seen that way. I don't think it's really the the factual case anymore that that you need to be in and around London to make a, a bloody good career out of being a comic. Do you think there are enough clubs for comedians to be able to make a living just clubbing? Oh, that's a really tough one because I think what happened is I think comedy clubs became a little bit like pubs in the 90s. There did become too many clubs. And what that did is it encouraged an awful lot of acts onto the circuit. And now, sadly, the number of clubs has declined at a pretty precipitous level. And the people that, this is the terrible thing about it, the people that are getting hurt by that are the people that got, quite rightly, attracted into a a way of living that is now falling short for them. So at this moment in time, no, there are not enough clubs 
I think, for the comics out there. But it's it's difficult because with my with my business and my commercial hat on, I do think we got to the point where there were just too many clubs. It's not particularly crazy for I, I can I can really only speak from my own four locations. I don't think there are too many clubs in Birmingham. There are too many clubs in Nottingham. I think there are too many clubs in Cardiff as well. I mean, you, you only have to go on to Chortle. You know, I think when I last counted, there are literally dozens of individual nights. Some of them are weekly, some of them are monthly. There's just too many of them. Every bit of research that I've ever done tends to suggest that going out to comedy, obviously people go out to comedy. How The question is, how often do they go out to comedy? And I think people over the years have kidded themselves that this is a, a weekly, a monthly, even a bi-monthly activity. It's not like going to the cinema. It's not like going to Nando's. People tend to go to comedy clubs, in our experience, once, twice, or three times a year. I would dearly love it if it was six or seven times a year. I don't know how it's got to this, but the little bit of surveying that we've done tends to indicate that coming out, particularly on a Friday and Saturday night, to a comedy club is a little bit of a treat. Is it chicken and egg, though? Is it like the lineups that they go to, because you have a rotation of acts and a rotation of different styles, they'll come out once every quarter because that's the month that is the style or the type or the individual comedian they like and because that comedian can't get more material or can't generate enough then you can't book him any more no i i think when people i mean i I, i'd love to speak to other to some of the other clubs about this but people who come to the glee don't look at the listings interesting they i don't think I, you know, th- we we put them up there because I think it's important to do so, and it's also important to provide you know people with the right information in order to make informed decisions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I mean, I, I think this hopefully will be corroborated by other operators. How many times have, have you or I gone up to a customer? Admittedly, it might be late on a Saturday night, and a few a few drinks will have been taken. It's literally five minutes after the show, and everyone everyone says how great it is. Give me the names of the four people that you've just seen. No, nothing. They don't even remember the names. I think that is a terrible shame, but when people come out to comedy, particularly on a Friday and Saturday, you know what they're coming out for? They're coming out for a laugh. They're not coming out to see named individuals. If they are, it's pretty rare. When we sell tickets on our website, we ask people the reason for coming. And one of the questions that they are asked on the website is, they get they get a drop-down menu, and one of them is, I just had to see a particular comedian. Do you know how many times that is given as the reason for coming? It's going to depress me, isn't it? Unfortunately, it's about 5%. Really? But that, but that, that isn't to say that people that, don't that's higher absolutely than I thought it was be. love what, what, what they're seeing. I also think there's a constituency of customers that they have their favourite comics and when they've been and they remember a particular comic and they see that comic coming again they go they go and see they go and see him again or her is that the five percent what's the correlation that five percent into your tour dates versus club oh tour dates it's a hundred percent okay when we have richard herring or or james acaster or or any of the other or any of the other touring acts there are 400 people sitting in the room and all 400 people are there solely to see that act except maybe in the case of like wives or wives or husbands or partners, yeah. But everyone who's booked, right. um, it's very very rare that you get, for example, a group of six, eight, or ten in on a, on a Wednesday night, and they aren't there to see that particular act. So there is. But it does happen occasionally. 
obviously. Yeah, the reason I laughed was because I've just come off the back of my tour and I just did a DVD record and I noticed in the last week before it, there's always about 5% of people who come who don't really know who I am or, or mm. like, or who have not done any research into who I am kind of mm. thing. Because a lot of people don't know who I am. In the DVD record, I you because I've got used to seeing them, I could see the people that had come with people who kind of liked me. Yeah, yeah. And they were sitting, some of them were sitting there just going, we've got to be nice, haven't we? Because he's recording this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, this, this, this brings us around. I don't know whether this is a bugbear for other operators. I mean, obviously, we, we all get complaints, and the complaints can range r- right across the spectrum. It could be food or drink or, or, or service-related. We actually don't get many of these, but we occasionally get emails and letters saying, I wish to complain that I came to the Glee Club on a Saturday night, and I thought the acts that night were dreadful. You know, <laughs> And they still often can't name any of them, or even say why they, they thought they were dreadful. It never ceases to, to amaze me. You know, Would you go to the cinema, having not actually looked and maybe read a review or at least watched the trailer or even just the shortest of descriptions of the film that you were about to see let's let's assume for a moment that you do do that you didn't like the film which you haven't bothered to research would you then write to the manager of that cinema going you're an absolute disgrace i can't believe you booked that particular film it should never have been shown at that cinema but you know every few months we get one we get one of those and i i have a fairly sort of standard reply which is along the lines of listen I'm, I'm ever so sorry but we did give you the name of the act and a description of the act you can go along to Jortland you can you can find out not only what independent reviewers think of that but you can also read lots and lots of members of the public's views of that act so it's just a bit odd really <laughs> But like you said, it's not like going to the cinema. It's yeah. a completely different thing. But I, th- I still think it is hugely incumbent upon the customer to at least have some knowledge of what they're seeing. But like I say, I would say on a Saturday night in a Glee club, 90% of people in that audience couldn't name in advance any of the acts that they're about to see. They've come out for a generic night of comedy and laughs. Do you think that's the type of audience you're attracting? Or do you think that's a general thing across the board? I, I would... Sp- Go so far as to speculate that I think that's quite general across the board. Why do you think that would be, though? Why wouldn't it be? The amount of comedians out there who have online presence and and yeah. take their time putting stuff up and yeah. trying to build followings and and you know do club circuit stuff and obviously have a listing on their website and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So you'd think. A portion of that but then like you said when they do their own show people come out in their numbers mm. so i suppose maybe it's they don't care when it's a club set they just want to laugh mm. but when it's a show yeah, they yeah. want a show yeah well, there's no doubt about it i think in the last 10 years ever since there's been an explosion of the sort of the solo touring stuff yeah i think things have changed a little bit but I, I still think the friday and the saturday night it's about a night out and it's about a treat and actually it, it, you know, if I have a criticism of clubs, it's that they don't... Re- I think clubs need to recognise that comedy night out on a Friday and a Saturday night is a treat. And it needs to be a, an awful lot more than a room, a row of seats and a microphone on a stand. You know, I mean, we... we th- those of us who are operating the, the bigger clubs, I think, are acutely aware that there is an awful lot of for want of a better expression, manufactured extra atmosphere, you know? I mean, obviously, look, what these four guys do on stage, you know, one hopes is going to be is, is going to make the night but it is so much else as well I mean you, you could have a brilliant lineup at the Glee you could have an identical lineup in another room which is again a row of chairs 
with with, with a microphone, and that's a comp- that's that's such a different night. I don't want to I don't want to spend too much time having a go at competitors, but there's a jonglers in Broad Street here in Birmingham, and it operates in the Gate Crasher nightclub up at the top end of Broad Street, and I popped along, and I just you know the, the crossover in terms of acts who are booked is. It's quite similar. We book a lot of acts that jonglers book, and jonglers book, book a lot of acts that, that, that we book. It's, it's, it's quite possible that four acts that we have at the Glee can be seen at Jonglers, those same four acts, in a few weeks' time up in the Gatecrasher. But I stand in that room and I just think, this is just so different. What is it about? What, what represents... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's the difference between the Glee Club and a room where there's a row of chairs out and a microphone in the corner. It's just so much. It's everything. And uh, I, I once... I, I I got somebody involved, a consultant, to sort of help me. You know, when I, when I was struggling with where, with where the business was going, and one night we went to all three of the big clubs in Birmingham. We went to to Jonglers and we went to Manfords, I think it was at the time, and we ended up at the Glee. You know what this guy said to me? We we arrived at the Glee and we stood at the back and we we watched a bit of the show. He goes. Now I kind of know what you mean, Mark. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, we've just arrived here. It's like getting into a warm bath. And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, look, the comics are all, they're so much more relaxed. They're even dressed a bit differently. They're they are just dressed a little bit down. The warmth that existed between those acts and my audience was different. They smiled at each other. Yes, there was banter. Might have been, you know, any any heckling, any any banter can get a bit edgy at times, but you just never felt it was. You just never never felt it was any. It was going to go anywhere other than ending up with a massive punchline and a and a good laugh. Whereas in the other places, you just you just never knew where it was going to go. It was like there was there was an awful lot of the acts were just like they they were standing on stage just trying to get through the stuff rather than standing on stage and enjoying it. And I think there's an awful lot to be said for the comics on stage actually really, really enjoying standing on that stage and feeling relaxed and not tense 
in any way. So one, one talks about sort of manufactured atmosphere. One of the biggest compliments that I've ever had, and I can't even remember, I, I struggle to remember what who the comic was that said it, but he said to me, you know, Mark, one of the things that makes the Glee so good is you make it really, really hard for us to die. In other words, what, he's, what, he, what he was saying is you've, you've done everything you possibly can, so if I die, let's face it, it's probably my fault. You know, I can't come off stage and go, the sound was terrible, there was all this background noise, the place was freezing cold, the audience was horrible. You know, if you deliver a great place, a lovely room, fantastic sound, and you crown it all by giving that group of comics that night a comedy-savvy, friendly audience wants to love them, then how, how can it go wrong? By outsourcing your booking to Off the Curve, essentially... Mm. Do you find it easier then to focus on the experience the performers and the audience will get? Yes, I think so. Look, don't get me wrong. We could end the outsourcing and bring the act booking into into this office tomorrow or next week, or you know, give them give give everyone reasonable notice. notice. You know what? I don't think there'd be a blind bit of bit of difference. One or two people might go, "Oh, it's fantastic! It's all going to change." I honestly don't think it would make a blind bit of difference because they they, they, they they listen to us. I think there will always be one or two people who who will who will gripe because they they look at it, they look at it as a kind of an outsourced thing. But to be honest, yeah, I think it does save us an awful lot of time to focus on. So you remember as well, we're operators. We we don't just sell tickets and promote the shows. We we retail an awful lot of food and drink, and we're, we're trying to get quite good at that. One of the things I decided that we just absolutely had to get better at, if not just plain good at, and I really made this commitment about ten years ago, is is food. I don't want the Glees to become oh it's a, it's a dining experience and here's some comedy. For us, it's always going to be en- entertainment first. But an awful lot of people want to come out and eat, and just 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 look at what's happened to. To food and eating out in 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 the UK in the last ten years, it has transformed from being average to shit to now you can go to almost any casual dining type chain and they'll all be pretty good. And if they're not good, they won't last. So we we've got to focus on that. We've got to get good on that. And it sounds like oh, well, it's all about sales of food and drink. The entertainment will always be first for us, but it's a crucial part of the experience. That's the thing I always talk about with comedians. It's, it's my most, I would say, probably one of my most talked about things I talk about with performers is mm. the experience I want to give the audience that have come to see me. Yeah. Because, so for example, I had a really, it, it turned into not an argument, but it turned into a bit of a debate at some point with a comedian about the music you play before the show starts. Oh, yeah. And for me, I pick that very strategically because I think on the way in, I'm still, I'm still at the door saying hello to everyone every time I do every show for, yeah. for my shows. And he was like, yeah, but you just need something, you just get something pumping. It's for, you know, pick something like, you know, that you see on TV that then they get used to the idea. And I'm like, you can do that. Yeah. And that will work, but isn't it better if your show has something that they can latch on to early? Yeah. Or isn't it better if there's an atmosphere that you can help, you know, induce before you're even on stage? Oh, very much so. I mean, we, we haven't become such a sort of a, a chain that we have anything approaching like some sort of, you know, operations manual that goes into the level of detail about sort of, you know, background music beforehand. But let me, I mean, let me assure you that that is it. That, that, that is thought about quite a bit. We were very lucky. We had a sound man called Tim who was with us actually for about 15 years. And he and he and us worked very, very closely together and really developed a sort of a, a unique house style 
of music. You know, even that got honed to the extent that you know you try to sort of build the tempo as the as the, as the minutes click down towards the the beginning of the show. I think the glee was also unique in the sense that you know. I know some people probably have a bit of a laugh about it, but we do all the, you know, the big signature music that we do, the Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, and Alistair has all his big booming announcements, which are all, obviously they're all recorded because they happen in all three venues. Well, that was a, a big part of it for us. And it wasn't, it isn't just about saying, hello audience, wake up, you're about to see a show. Because one of the things I thought was, was was not good about about the about the scene as I saw it when I was first observing it was the way the compare would just sort of walk on. It was, come on, we're here for a night out. How about how about a, a bit of theatre? So I think the Glee were a little bit sort of pioneerish in that respect. But yeah, I mean for us, certain things will always be will will also be sacrosanct. You know, we will always have audiences facing the stage. You know, much as though we're trying to sell more and more food and, and do drinks and do a lot of it, we are, I don't think we are ever, ever going to move away from a situation in which, yes, there are tables, yes, there is food on tables, those tables and those chairs will always face the stage. Otherwise, it's to me, it's disrespectful. For the answer for this question, you can split. Yeah. But I yeah. just want to ask it as a, as a blunt sort of, because I'm sure there'll be at least a few people listening, given that, you do, you've said you're a promoter and a provider of a space, essentially. And a lot of places that are like that, that aren't like yours, that are like franchise or something like yeah, that, yeah. there's a business interest that splits whether they are more interested in the audience or the acts. Yeah. And, and I was going to ask, and I, and I feel I've got a vibe from you which one the answer would be, but if I were to ask you straight which one for you is more important, whether it be for the business or for yourself, which one of those do you put more time and effort. Which, which one of those is more important in terms of what you do on a day-to-day basis? Oh, Jesus, it's the show. Okay. It's, oh, Jesus, it's the show. I mean, much as though we are, it's, it's, it's weird that they're not entirely mutually exclusive, but maybe as a philosophy, the best answer I can give is that for us, the show will always be number one. Food and drink then becomes ancillary to that. But that doesn't mean that you spend an awful lot of time working on it. No, it's it's always show first. And every time I see any of my managers, the first thing I say to them is, "How was the show? How was the show?" The food and drink comes after that. You know, when it comes to December and it's Christmas, the food becomes pretty important because there's an awful lot of people that come for that. But it's almost as if you know you can trip up an awful lot on food and drink. But if the show is fantastic, people will forgive you. I, you mentioned this thing about about us being operators versus the franchise or, or the pop-up type model. That's important because, I mean, I'll give you a very good example of something which I noticed on Twitter. There was a there was a little bit of a Twitter sort of complaint or a com- Twitter storm. It was happening in relation to a competitor. I won't name it. I won't name it. It wasn't Jonglers. The customer was complaining about a night that they had in a particular comedy club. And they were, they were, they were complaining about the venue. They were complaining about the drinks. I think they said the toilets were really disgusting. And the message came back from the promoter. Oh, that's nothing to do with us. That's the venue owner. We just promote the shows. To which the response via Twitter came. Oh, I thought it was your name above the door. Yeah. I don't need to say anything else. No, no, no. You know, it's, it, it is important because the customer is coming for that overall experience. They are coming for that overall experience and it just isn't good enough to go, oh, well, the state of the toilets, that's nothing to do with us. One of the most interesting things I found when I was researching you and the club was a thing Brendan Burns said in his Chortle keynote a few years ago where he, and you were in the room at the time, so so I'm sure you remember what he said. I, think I remember. Yeah, he said that the Glee Club used to have a reputation for lovely people running it 
shit audiences. And then they started asking us questions about, as in comedians, yeah. running a club, getting in the right people, yeah. getting in comedy audiences, yeah, yeah. And, and it all changed. Yeah. If you were getting in people, but you weren't, you, I mean, what was the reason for that? Well, in, 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 in the 90s, when we first got going, I think one of the reasons why we, were getting, why we were getting shit audiences is because we were absolutely blazing a trail. There was none of this. The only other comedy club comparable to the, comparable to the Glee in 1994 were, was the Comedy Store or, or Jonglers. So we were getting an, an awful lot of customers that just didn't know what to expect. It did take several years before we helped curate and corral a comedy-savvy audience. But it, it is also true that in the first few years, maybe we didn't really understand what we were doing. You know, in the first few years of the club, not all our tables faced the stage. Some of them faced the stage, but we had rows. We had we had the perpendicular rows at the back, a little bit a little bit like jonglers. Things got better for us when every single table pretty much faced the stage. You know, maybe we were, I don't know, maybe we were trying to police the room too harshly. Brendan was absolutely right. We did have some tough audiences. Some of it might have been just numbers related. The fact of the matter is, when you start putting north of 300 people in any room, the statistical likelihood of you having wankers in that room is just reasonably high. Policing isn't the right word, but I don't know, just managing managing a room, I think, is, is a really, really key skill. And again, that, that's why I think it's important to be the operator. You know, I think when, when you're a pop-up, maybe you only have one representative of the promoter in that room and he or she might be sitting on the sound desk or, or something like that. You know, the last thing you want to be doing is leaving the, the management of that room to you know, random doorman or, you know, nightclub staff. Because a comedy audience is... It's, 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 they're like a hybrid between coming out to a club and a theatre. They expect a certain standard and they expect to be treated in a, in a certain way. And it's definitely, it's a real skill. We work quite hard to make sure we've got the right doorman, for example. It takes a long time before a doorman is, I think, really properly and well-trained to know when to intervene and know what to say when they tap somebody on the shoulder and go, can you pipe down, etc., mm. etc. Et and again, I think that's another reason why Look, there will always be pop-ups. I mean, one of our clubs, Oxford, that's not our venue. We just worked incredibly hard with the local management down there, and eventually they, they just they really got what we did. They studied what, what we did by us constantly training them and inviting them to, to the other clubs. And, and eventually, the, here's, here's, the real, here's the real paradox. The Oxford Club, which was the one of our clubs where we weren't the operator, we were just the promoter, it ended up recently getting the best of all four clubs when it came to TripAdvisor reviews. Because the local staff there just got so, so into looking after the customer. But it's, it's not just about looking after the customer. An awful lot of it is somebody's not happy. We need to deal with that situation on the night. If somebody's not happy, if they've posted it on on, if they post a bad experience on something like TripAdvisor, too late. You know, our big our big thing is let's see if we can spot these issues on the night and resolve them on the night. And often all people want if something's gone wrong is an explanation and an apology and a free drink. What's your relationship then like with social media in general, in terms of both with, with relations to customers and promotion? Um, well, first of all, going all the way back, I think we were really quick to the, to the internet full stop. Our first website went up in, in 1999 and we were, selling, we were selling tickets to customers via the internet 
by the year 2000. We were then quite slow when it came to social media. And here, here's where I was at the time. People were saying to me, MySpace, 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 and Facebook as well. And I was kind of going, well, hang on a minute. None of these sites sell my tickets. You know, I've got this thing called glee.co.uk. That's where people want tickets. So now what do you want me to do? Do you want me now to employ extra people, literally whose job is just to curate content on lots and lots of other sites? And for a while I went, no, I'm not having that. But the short answer to that is, is yes. We were slow to recognise how big and important it has now become. And of course, we, we rapidly, once we realised that, we rapidly reacted to it. And of course, we have a Facebook page for each venue and we have Instagram. And we have, we, we're, we're probably slightly odd in the sense that we only have one Twitter account for yeah, the Glee that. Club. Although we do have this Glee Cardiff crew, which is a little bit of an, an, an experiment. Maybe that's a bit odd. But no, I mean, I'd like to think that we are... We're probably old school compared to London. I think I listened to another one of your podcasts where one of the contributors said, everything is digital. I don't spend any money on adverts in magazines or newspapers and stuff like that. We still spend a reasonable amount of our marketing budget on adverts in the metro, adverts in in local listings, physical brochures that go to venues, physical brochures that go out onto display stands and into hotels. I don't know what to say about that. You know, we're not in London, but also I'm I'm not entirely convinced that a dash to digital is the answer. I think digital is getting bigger and more important, and it's definitely getting an increased share of a of a limited budget. But we're still at the point where I think, by analysis, probably half of our spend is digital, and half of it half of it is traditional. And some people would say that's incredibly old fashioned. But it works for us. Yeah, that's the thing, is, is people say things like, oh, I, I don't want to join Twitter. And I'm like, are you selling enough tickets? And you don't need to join it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Who is the famous ad? Maybe you can help me. Who is the famous ad man that says once, very famously, half of the money I spend on advertising is wasted? The trouble is, I don't know which half. half. Yeah, oh, yeah. God, I know. I think, I think everybody, every promoter out there must think that. I th- well, naturally, you're going to do more than you need to do. Yeah. Because it doesn't, you, unless you get to a stage where you're herring or you're someone who spent literally 10 years building your own yeah. base of audience, which yeah. means that you can just mail them and say, look, I'm coming here. Yeah. And then they'll buy them because they know what they're getting. They know it's quality and they know, you know, they don't have to do any research and stuff. But um, I suppose my question for that was, a follow-up question for that was, about how you find promoting in the different cities you're in because obviously this podcast has become a little bit london centric partly mm. because i'm there and so it's geographically convenient <laughs> for me to interview people that i'm near but also you know you, you find you tend to get similar answers and i don't know whether that's because they're all following each other so it's kind of the blind leading the blind mm. or whether it's that's just what works there and what works for example in cardiff what works mm. in birmingham like if it's a case of that works i mean are you able to track like newspaper adverts or flyers or oh, of course I mean, this is this is the ultimate downside with it with with most things that are non-digital you can't track it <laughs> it's, it's 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 you know i'm not going to lie it's sticking a thumb in it's sticking a, a finger in the air all we can do is we can look at 22 years in in business and one can try and draw some sort of conclusions from you know maybe different slight changes in emphasis as to where we may or may not have advertised um, I mean, we've, we've recently got some, some fresh legs uh, in terms of personnel when it comes to marketing. 
and he, as soon as he arrived he went straight around everyone and asked them what, what they thought worked and what, what they thought didn't work and do you know what the the one thing that that jumped out was the the sort of the 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 lack of consensus in in the sense that everybody just wanted to, to do a bit of everything and they just what what they just what, what they wanted for us was just to be louder turn the volume up and more consistent and just do it regularly i think we'd become a little bit sort of this club isn't doing so well so let's just promote that club this club is doing well so we don't need to bother about that we've gone we've gone back to maybe an, an old way of doing it and an expensive way of doing it but we try not to discriminate too much between the clubs so there's a, a relatively even split in the sense that this year no one club got massive priority over another um, no one night you know it's not like we're trying to promote weekend comedy ab ab over and above it, anything else it's just it, this was just a big year f for us for generally raising awareness of, of, the, of the Glee brand and of course the fact that this is 2016 I'm mentioning this because you, you might be about to bring it up 2016 is the first year in six years where I haven't had a TV show on the sky called Glee, <laughs> which obviously became the subject of my massive legal action. But here's the interesting thing, you know, before Glee, I had a certain run rate of sales in my clubs. I had six years of trademark infringement and a TV show called Glee. And I had, You I didn't had have a, a TV show, there was a TV show. There was a TV yeah. show, yeah, sorry. It wasn't your show. <laughs> yeah, no. And my sales stagnated or fell. And 2016 was the first year in which I, I haven't had that. And the bounce back has been, frankly, astonishing. You know, we're, we're, this year, we're having the best year in, in, in living memory. Sort of 25% up on, up on last year. So something's changed. Don't know what it is. <laughs> Well, I was going to ask whether, first of all, that had an impact. And second of all, well, I mean, do you want to, do you want to summarise the legal stuff so that anyone who doesn't know? Yeah, I mean, for those who, who haven't heard about it, I was sitting, flicking through the, the, the channels on my Skybox in around about 2010 and suddenly flipped on, I think it was to E4 at the time, and, and discovered there was a TV show called Glee. My first reaction was, oh, bloody hell, there's a, there's a TV show with the same name as, as, as my four clubs. And I watched the programme and I was horrified. I, I don't don't really know how best to describe it other than it's the, it's the worst bit of TV that I've ever seen or one of the worst bits of TV that I've ever seen. And even, you know, I've had plenty of dialogue with 20th Century Fox. I think even they were absolutely, totally flabbergasted by the phenomenon that it became. It ended up being one of the most unlikely massive hits, quite possibly in recent TV history. So whilst it was on E4, I did a little bit of research and I, I found out that it's, the programme itself was remarkably similar to a previous incarnation, presumably made by a rival studio, and it was called High School Musical. And guess what? It lasted one series and I managed to track down the viewership of it and it was pretty minimal and it was a flop. And that's exactly what I thought that, that Glee would be. And I was, in fact, I was hoping it was going to be a flop because it filled me with the, the fear of God that I would need to approach 20th Century Fox and highlight a, a potential problem, which was that I trademarked The Glee Club in 1999, which was a pretty, it took me four or five years to get the trademark registration, but it still ended up being registered a full 10 years before Glee came on TV. Anyway, cut a long story short, fast forward another year, it ended up on Sky 
and the viewership ended up running into many, many millions. Um, the calendars and the merchandise were appearing in Tesco's. There was a, there were there were live shows in I think London and London and Manchester. We were doing podcasts at the time, and we put our glee casts, as we called them, up on iTunes. And we noticed the feedback from them, and the people that were listening to them were saying how disappointing. I thought this was I thought this was going to be to do with the the Glee TV show. Then, of course, simultaneously, my staff in the various clubs were reporting back to me that all sorts of weird things were happening. People were walking into the club and asking if this was to do with the TV show. Japanese tourists were, you know, taking photographs. People were singing songs from the Glee shows outside the clubs. But probably one of the one of the big things for us is we were we were out at all we were out at Freshers Fairs at the time. So we were trying to promote to to the younger demographic and we were met in some cases with hostility and in other cases with ridicule because people were just making a connection between our Glee, our Glee Club brand and Glee on, Glee on the TV. To cut a long story short, we, we felt this was damaging us. We, 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 we knew it was damaging us. So we, we gathered the evidence, uh, that evidence. We, we, our legal action broke some new ground in the sense that some of that evidence was digital. It came from things like Twitter. So, for example, comics were tweeting that they were appearing at the Glee this weekend and there were numerous instances where they were being mocked and ridiculed by, by, by members of the public. And to cut a long story short, Fox told us in no uncertain terms that we were talking out of our backside, that we should go take a running jump. And I ended up spending five days in in the High Court in London. Uh, I think we produced something like 24 witnesses, of, and then Fox cross-examined probably about a dozen of them, including me. But crucially, they cross-examined three members of the public who'd who'd not only come forward with evidence, but rather amazingly for me, they were also prepared to come to London and go on the witness stand and be be cross-examined by two two barristers. And the net result of that five days in court was we we sued Fox in three areas. Section 10.2 of the Trademark Act is known as the, the likelihood of confusion clause. And we won on that. The judge said, listen, consumers are changing their economic behaviour. What we're really talking about here mainly is people who, who never buy a ticket in the first place. People who've already been know what we are. These are people who encounter us by our advertising, but they may or may not also encounter either before or afterwards Glee on the TV. And because Glee on the TV was so massive, they assume that this little thing in Birmingham, Cardiff, Oxford, Nottingham must be something to do with the TV show. And they are put off buying a ticket in the first place. And the judge found that that was, that, that was happening. Second thing we sued on was Section 10.2 of the Trademark Act. That's generally known as the brand tarnishment clause. And we won on that too. The judge said, listen, you know, you're a fledgling brand. And you, essentially it's known as the swamping clause as well. You were totally and utterly swamped by a giant and you, you had no chance. We threw in for good measure. We sued them on passing off. I never thought we'd won. we were going to win on passing off, but we didn't win on passing off. But the net result was a win. So we won a massive legal action against one of the largest media corporations in the world. Owned Congratulations. Rupert Murdoch, thank you. And I thought it was all over by then, but oh no, they appealed. <laughs> so a couple of years later, we ended up having the whole case retried, essentially, in the appeal court in front of three judges. We won, again, exactly the same result. We won on likelihood of confusion. We won on on tarnishment and we lost on 
on passing off. And then that wasn't good enough for them. So they then tried to get the case referred to the CJEU, the European Court. I won't bore you with with the reasoning behind that because it really, I wanted to hang myself at this point. But we went along to the appeal court again, same three judges, and we spent many, many hours and many, many thousands of pounds of legal fees arguing over whether or not it should be, it should go to the European Court and we won. It wasn't sent to the European Court because essentially the judges said there, there's no issue. And guess what? It still isn't over because any day now I'm going to hear back from the Supreme Court, the old House of Lords. Leave to appeal to the Supreme Court was denied by the Appeal Court but they denied 90% of cases. Most people if they want to go to the Supreme Court you apply directly and uh, you ask the judges or you ask a panel of judges to to accept your case and I'm just I'm potentially days away from hearing whether or not it's going to be taken on by the Supreme Court but here's the thing in order to go to the Supreme Court you've got to come up with something generally quite new and it's got to be a matter of great public significance and 20th Century Fox in their great wisdom have decided that they want to argue that their freedom of expression has been infringed upon. Do you know what I find really interesting about that is you were saying before audiences don't research things. Mm. They've not researched things, but they've watched, they've just sort of seen words. Do you know what I mean? They've seen similar words. And so maybe comedy audiences aren't the only ones that don't research. Yeah, Yeah. you could be right. And also, I mean, in London, a lot of performers like to clubs book them because they've got TV credits. Yeah. And a lot of agents are saying, uh, sorry, not agents, a lot of promoters are saying that makes no difference at the moment Mm -hmm. because if they've seen you on TV, half half the chances you're going to be doing the same material and so they don't want to see it anyway. Yeah, yeah. And the other half of the chances, they they want to see you do an hour. They don't want to see you do just the thing again. Yeah, yeah. So it actually isn't making, actually isn't benefiting anyone. I'm a little bit on the side of when it comes to Thursday, Friday and Saturday nights, I don't think TV credits make make a big difference. Yeah, there's, there's just an awful lot of panel shows and they've been the same panel shows and they haven't really changed for 10 years or so. I just don't think they're making the same impact as they, they used to. I'm not even sure that an appearance on Live at the Apollo makes a massive difference to, um, yeah. I think it makes some, but yeah. but not that much. No, I'm going to do the quick fire last questions because yeah. I've realised that my parking's going to run out in a minute. <laughs> it's my fault. Okay, um, these quick fire for me, you take as long as you want. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Okay, what is the best show you've ever seen? And don't say Glee. <laughs> best show well several of Daniel Kitson's shows I'm a massive Daniel Kitson fan I thought Greg Davies is throwing cheese balls at a dog for me personally I don't know why that was a really big one for me I like almost anything that Stuart Lee does but you know I'm one of those kind of you know I'm one of those kind of weird guys that I, I kind of like most of what Stuart Lee does but I also like most of what Tim Vine does and Milton Jones and stuff like that but yeah some of Daniel Kitson's gigs some early Rod Gilbert really did it for me too what is the uh, well hmm, what is the biggest mistake you've ever made and how did you overcome it oh, I need time to th- I need a bit more time to think about these things biggest mistake do you want to come back to that one yeah okay yeah who is the most underrated person in the comedy industry? Jesus. <laughs> that's, so, that's such difficult quick part. Well, that's the idea, because it, it just gets you to just answer immediately, so you don't have, to, you don't have time to sort of go, who should I pick up? Who am I going to miss out? So it's that sort of... I think some of the most underrated people are, you know, the floor managers and bar managers in some of these clubs. I'd agree with that. Yeah. I try and make my best effort to make friends hard, with them. They get they, hard yeah. time. And it's a very thankless job, that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I'm really not very good at these ones. No, that's okay. What is the most sorry, what is the most common misconception people have about what you do? Oh, they think 
they think that I'm some sort of like entertainment Svengali, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, you know, I suppose they, you know, they think it's all about sort of, you know, meeting stars and, and you know, being in the media and stuff like that. But, you know, l- look at where you are. You're, you're in a little unit in the corner of a giant freezing cold industrial building <laughs> on the, you know, miles from anywhere in, in Birmingham. You know, I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a technocrat. I just I just run the business um, on a, on a day to day basis and I try to be a, a good operator. Yeah, but I think people sort of think of us as media moguls. In actual fact, you know, we're we're, we're somebody like me is just a, a couple of levels up from you know the manager of a bar. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. What is the biggest problem in the comedy industry, and how would you go about solving it? It doesn't have to be a realistic solution, by the way. It would just be if you could do anything. I wish I could get the whole industry, I think, to address the issue of quality. Coming out to comedy is a treat. It's just not good enough to put a mic stand and a row of chairs out in a function room anymore. If it, it frustrates me a lot, and I, I think it might be one of the reasons why people don't come out to comedy as much as they might, because they've been to the dog and duck, and they've seen something in an average venue, and they might have seen some dare I say it, maybe slightly average comedy. I don't want to I don't want to be disrespectful for all the dog and ducks out there, you know, because I think that's a really, really important part of the comedy ecosystem. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the maybe the customer deep down, you know, they understand what that is in the same way that they understand that when they spend eighteen or nineteen pounds on a ticket to come to the Glee, they've got a completely different set of expectations. But I do think that in the twenty years that twenty two years that have been involved in this, we've tried to constantly, constantly raise the quality bar, but I, I just haven't seen it elsewhere. I think people just forget that the aspiration has got to be that watching any comedy has got to be an amazing treat. It's just, it's almost as if like, you know, I, I try not to even use the words up and coming because I just think, you know, up and coming comics, that's just, you may as well just say shit amateurs you know i think that's what the public now because it's been used that much the public are wise to that raising the quality is the thing that i wish i could get everybody everybody to do a bit a bit more of make it a treat a bit more theater make it a bit more more special maybe maybe a bit more innovation too in the industry says he who's been doing this almost the same thing for (laughs) 22 years but carousel which you're you're just about to involve yourselves in that just that came about as a result of me sitting down in a coffee shop with Andy Robinson and me starting by saying, you know what, Andy, we've been doing the same thing on Thursday nights for 22 years. We need to do something different. And Andy Robinson saying to me, funny enough, Mark, I, was, I wanted to meet you for a cup of coffee to pitch an idea that we do something different on Thursday nights and, and the rest is history. Who knows? I mean, maybe the... Maybe the mixed bill format, four acts, one compare, two intervals, which I think the Glee practically invented. When, when I when I got got going, it, London was still five acts, five acts and one interval. Maybe maybe that needs to change. That's going to be a bold innovation for anyone that decide, decides to do something differently there. But I think Edinburgh previews and solo shows and double headliners, and I think just people. People experimenting is a, is, is a good thing. There should be more of that too. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming on. You're welcome. That was Mark. Sometimes I have a chat with someone in industry and it really makes me remember that industry is, first of all, an illusion. It's a total sort of, not lie, but it's a sort of add-on thing to what we're doing, trying to monetize it in a way that we maybe can't. But it also makes me feel really nice about the circuit 
And for me, the biggest takeaway point with this podcast was his ambitious nature and the way he went after what he wanted and he didn't pick the safe path. And I think it's really easy to think that it's only the people on stage who are chasing their dream. But the reality is a lot of the absolute legends who work tirelessly behind the scenes are doing that as well. I also enjoyed hearing his thoughts on the circuit and if it's in crisis and our mutual belief that the show starts before you're even on the stage and the room, space, smell, feel, music creates the atmosphere that adds to the production value of your show. I have this debate with people all the time and it drives me insane that people don't give enough thought to the music when they're walking in. But I don't know, maybe I'm a pedant. Maybe me and Mark are pedants and we're, we're overthinking things, I don't know. But makes me feel more comfortable when I picked the music and I feel like I'm in more control of the situation and the feel of the room that I'm giving the people that are spending time with me. Like he said, comedy is a treat for some people. Yet I go and see it four, five nights a week. They go and see it four or five times a year, maybe. The, the reality of the situation is not lost on me. If you appreciate his honesty and how much time he's given us, please do feel free to thank him. You can find the Glee Club's social media links in the show notes, as well as all of Mark's. Please go and say thank you if you got any value out of this podcast, because with that positivity and that good vibe going out to that guest, it really helps if I need to ask them to help me get another guest on, or even if they suggest someone, it just really helps the momentum of this show go. So, And also, it's a nice thing to do. Like, forget the the sort of... <laughs> I don't know, networky element of it, that, you know, you've got a nice way of starting to talk to a big club chain operator. Think of it as you're just doing something nice, which is which is good, and, like, there's not enough of that. So just take a minute. And that goes for all the guests, by the way. If you have a minute, go and thank a guest, because, honestly, they give up two, three hours of their life to record these with me, and then I give up a day of my life to edit and put this online. So least you can do is thank them. <laughs> All of those links are on my website at simonkane.co.uk or you can Google Simon Kane and it will come up that way. If you like this episode, another recent one you might like about the live circuit was with the team at Angel Comedy, which was episode 70? I think it was 70 or 71. Should have researched that before I did this. You'd think I'd re-record it, but no, leave it in. So yeah, I would say give that a scroll back, have a little look. I'd highly recommend it, but then I'm biased, I made it, but... I genuinely think it's worth looking into. I've got loads more from promoters before and loads more promoters coming on. So please do have a scroll back and you can have a look on my website where they're all categorized. As always, if you're new here, please do hit the subscribe button as I do two podcasts every single month. If you're old here and you haven't already, please do take a minute to give us an honest review on iTunes. Ideally four or five stars as a lot of work goes into this, but whatever you think it's worth. But if you think it's worth one star, email me that. Don't put it up on the internet. Also, if whatever you get star rating you're giving it, please do leave a comment, as I've been told that helps with the chart positioning. I don't know, Apple and iTunes are very secretive about their charts and the way they operate, but I've been told that makes a difference, and I'm going with my friend's help. So, yeah, if you can do that, that'd be amazing. You can also donate money to support the show via PayPal as a one-off or Patreon as an ongoing donation for every pod put out. If you're going to give more than £12, you might as well put it towards buying a copy of my book because that way you get something back for the money that you're putting in. And if you're giving in less than that, you can also buy a digital copy for £5. But for now, thanks for listening, thanks for reviewing, and thanks for donating if you do. And I'll see you all in about 15 days' time. Bye! Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 